Welcome to part two of the Miller Mahano interview for the latest in the series of our history podcasts. Last week we heard of Mill's trials and tribulations, his struggles as a, uh, a young boy in East Brunswick. This week we hear Mill talk of the, the highs and lows of his football career, specifically the disasters that were the 93-94 seasons and of course the sheer triumph of the season that was 1995. Enjoy. Mill, you were out for the 86 season, of course, and you came back, I think it was in June of 87, as you said, 13-month layoff. You didn't make it to grand final day 87. Were you in the mix, do you remember? I remember coming back half, you know, round seven or eight in 87, and I actually didn't play the first six games of that 87 season because I'd actually, it was out for 13 months, so it was like, I missed the first four games of the 87 season, or first four or five games. So I think I played one or two games in the reserves and they put me straight back in. And I was sort of, you know, I was just on a high just trying to get back. And, and then I played the next nine games. And I think the first three or four games were pretty good. And then it was just sort of reality kicked in with my knee. And, and, and it, I'd probably be kidding myself if I said that throughout, for the rest of my career, I don't think my knee was ever... You know, I just didn't feel like, you know, it was ever 100%. And I look back at some of the things I was sort of used to do before that and after that, it just wasn't quite the same. And I just felt like the reality of, you know, just hitting and and I was scared to jump and I was scared to do things with my knee, whereas, you know, first three or four games, you just go on adrenaline and then when it just sort of sinks in. And, um, and then I eventually got dropped and went back in the reserves. And we had such a great year that year. I mean, I think Carlton played that year, what, 30-something players in the seniors in 87. Just couldn't get back in the team and wasn't, you know, my form was pretty good because I'd, I'd played the... So I'd gone back to the reserves and played the next whatever games, nine or ten games. I managed, I think, even to come third in the best and fairest in the reserves that year playing ten games. So my form was really good but just couldn't get back in the team. So that's, that's sort of... That's a bit of a regret of mine. I, I think at the time... It wasn't because I was absolutely convinced the team that Carlton had, I honestly thought we'd play in five... Pre- I thought I'd play in five premierships. That's how I thought, easy I thought it was going to be. And as you know, it's bloody difficult. It's right? hard. And I just thought, you know, no big deal. I'm, I'm, I'm 21. Mate, look at the team we got. We're, we're going to play... I'm going to win five premierships here. Just so doesn't quite work that way. doesn't work that way. You um, obviously mentioned how you know this was an issue for you from game one that you know the knee was never quite the same which is remarkable to think you'd play another 189 more with that the way it was and yet you you didn't really suffer another injury as serious as that one for the rest of your career did you play up the ground because of that you know you, you mentioned you had trouble jumping or whatever did that actually precipitate you being moved up the field no that i i think i played in the back line because of that because what happened was, you know, I was playing obviously in the forward line and whilst I was playing in the forward line before the 86 season, you know, I was leaping and jumping and doing all sorts of things, you know. And when I did come back, you know, I've seen a few little highlights and stuff, you know, during that 87 season. I just wasn't playing with the same sort of style as I was playing pre-86. You know, that sort of, you know, when you're jumping reckless endeavour in terms of going for marks and stuff like that. So I think when I come back, Backline, the theory was, well, you know, run straight ahead and you have to do much twisting and stuff like that. So I think it took me a good, 
you know, 87, you know, I think it took me a good three to four years, honestly, before I really felt like, you know what, it's been three or four years and I just become accustomed to the way my knee felt. And I sort of, you know, played in the back line for a while. Then, you know, four or five years after that, my last four or five years of the club, I started playing me in the midfield and a bit around the forward line. So, but I still never felt like, you know, as I said, it was, you know, I ended up with a career that just blew me away in terms of what I thought I'd ended up being as a kid. But I just never quite felt that that knee was ever, you know, the same. Of course, your best years were probably beyond, you know, that, that setback you had. 89, 90, 92 particularly. You, you were, I think, all Australian in 92 and you were runner-up to Stephen Kern and the club best and fairest. That was obviously, a, a you know, a standout year for you, that 92 season. Yeah, 92 was, you know, I mean, the, the couple of years before that, reasonable years, but 92 was a year where I think the coach decided to, you know, he was playing me on a lot of the good forwards in the other team. It was sort of more or less like a challenge and, you know, we'd play St Kilda, I'd play on Windmill, we'd play Collywood, I'd play on Brown, we'd play whoever it was, you know, not necessarily the biggest and best, but it's just one of the, you know, and I just, it was one of the thing focuses I had and I just sort of started playing and I had a great year and, um, you know, not only sort of negating but trying to run down the field and stuff like that and um, so, you know, those three or four years were, you know, were, you know, very memorable Years personally, obviously, in the team wise, they, they were different. Um, yeah, so it was just it's just un- it was just a shame we didn't sort of you know weren't more successful during that time. And of course, uh, you were, went from a player coach by Robert Walls through to David Parkin. How would you compare contrast the two coaches? Wallsy was Wallsy was very innovative. You know, he's a very innovative coach. Quite an intimidating coach at the time for a young for a young player, you know. You just qu- didn't quite know what he was thinking. You know, you'd, you'd go up to him and say, oh, "I'm not, my leg's not feeling that well," and he'd look at you and he wouldn't say anything. He'd just look at you. He looks straight in and thinking, "What's he thinking?" You know, as he was coming, thinking he's probably thinking, "Oh, you're weak, you're weak, prick, whatever it is." Um, but, you know, as far as um, some of the methods, as you would know, what he introduced in football were ahead of his time, you know. It was it was a shame, and I, I suppose he would be the first one to admit it was a shame for his sake and probably for our sake that it ended like it ended because I think potentially, in my view, that given his time again, I think if he'd, you know, tamed his ways a little bit, I think he would have been an incredibly successful coach because of his, you know, Obviously, knowledge of the game and, and ability to take massive risks and 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 be able to identify very quickly who can play, who can't play, and you know not put up with people, you know. And I and, and look honestly, early in my career, he was probably nearly the demise of my career because you know I went through a stage where I was terrified to do anything, and because I was terrified to do anything, it heightened everything, so it looked like I was terrified, you know. Whereas I was just scared to make moves, whereas. You know, and then he just kept grinding you and driving you into the ground and driving you. And every single Tuesday night, I'd be in a, I'd be in a hit list after training to stay back for an hour with a number of blokes. You know, so it was all that kind of stuff. You know, and it was like, you know, you don't do the right thing. You put in, you put in this basket with everyone else. So, um, but you know, you know, I enjoyed my time with him, and I think he, he taught me a lot. But you know, as I said, I think you know, have have the time again. It would have been nice to have it in a, different circumstances. David Parkin, I think David Parkin was great probably the best great all-round coach you know he had the ability probably the best motivator I've had uh, obviously 
best orator, communicator, whatever you said, you know. So he was, he 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 captivated the players. He kept you. What I liked about him was, you know, as a young kid, and by the end of it, I suppose you'd heard it all before, so it'd become a bit too much. But you know, he made everything he'd do a big deal. Everything through instances in a game, through your game, through everything was like made to be a big deal. So you felt like I'm. I'm important, I'm in an important club and this is an important situation and, you know, we do stuff and you'd say, that's a new world record. You know, what do you mean world record? We're the, Australia's the only country that plays AFL, you know what I mean? <laughs> that kind of stuff. But you, never, but you never thought about it that way at the time. So he was great. And then, in, you know, as everyone would know, famously in 95, he basically handed the reins over to the players. We basically dictated what was going on every week. It was a, it was a stroke of genius. Mm. You know, sure. to a point. Now, obviously, we didn't, he coached the team and, and managed it, but it was... He's brilliant. We'll get to 95 shortly, uh, but I did want to ask you, uh, you mentioned the coaches. The one constant in your career was the captain. You played your first game alongside him when he made his debut, as we said earlier. You played your last game, the last game that he played for Carlton, that faithful game here, Mill against Richmond, Ben Harrison kicked the, the winning goal. Seven goals up at half time. <laughs> that, ended, that ended our careers. That ended our careers. I think we would have played for another year if we, hadn't have, if we had have won that one and got into the finals. I still can't work out how it happened, Mill. But look, could I ask you about Kernahan? He's a fairly modest, well, he's a very modest sort of a fellow, but he's the longest serving captain in the history of the game. What was it about him, that, that leadership quality that he had that, you know, obviously galvanised the Carlton players. Well, you know, he looked back and I've been asked this question a million times by other play, other people and people from other clubs and all that kind of stuff. And look, you know, in simple terms, he was what you call genuine leader of men. You know, and as simple as that. He was a person who, no matter what the circumstances were during a game, no matter what his form was like during a game, there was never any quivering in terms of he, he was with a quarter time, half time, three quarter time. There was always that steely resolve. And when he spoke, you just, you know, well, this is possible. We can win this because, you know, I remember him countless times walking around, you know, stamping his feet around at half time, screaming, and, and not just for the sake of it because oh, I'm supposed to because I'm captain. And this was a genuine, you know, and. The opposite scale, I remember when new players would turn up to the club and kids, and we, you know, back in those early days, there were 60 players training during pre-season. He'd just go up to blokes, introduce, out of nowhere, introduce himself and say, and, these, and I could see these kids thinking, I can't believe this, right? And in subsequent years, I've had many chats with players from other clubs, which I won't mention, and talking to them and talking about their respective captains, and they said, this just didn't happen in our club. I said, what do you mean? He said, our captain wouldn't have known the name of those players. And for me, that was a defining moment in terms of saying, well, this guy, you know, he's not interested in just talking to me or, or, or Diesel Williams or something like that. He spoke to all that. That's, that's off the field. Obviously, on the field, you know, his record speaks for itself, you know. I mean, he's, how often has he won the game for us? I mean, you can't. I've lost count in terms of how often he's had to actually take the mark when he's got to take the mark. So, but for me, is that overall package, that, 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 that presence he had, the ability to play well when he had to play well, 
you know, and he played in an era where there's some really good backmen in those days, you know, like Langfords and all those guys. So it's, you know, he had difficult games every single week. Um, but he was just an absolute credible leader, credible leader. And, you know, just from, from the bottom down all the way up to the top and there was, there was, he was relentless. He was really relentless when it came to game time and training and, and social things. The game time, there was never a moment. It wouldn't matter if Sticks was getting, if Sticks had zero kicks to half time, and if I'd had zero kicks to half time, I'm in the room, I've got my head down, I'm feeling sorry for myself. He's had zero kicks to half time, and if you just walk into those rooms, you would say, he's, he's talking like he's had 20 kicks. So he's not, he's not even worried about his own form. And that's, that's what happens. Beautifully articulated, Mel. I haven't heard a, 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 as apt a description about Stephen Kearney from anyone. So, um, and that was from someone that was there for the whole, the whole journey. Yep. Mill, we won't dwell on 93 too long, specifically the 93 grand final. I mean, again, you, I think you played about 19 matches that season. So you had a good year, steady year. The 93 grand final, do you remember a lot about it? I mean, there was that celebrated incident with Dean Wallace. What actually happened? Um, my kids reminded me the other day because my, my son put it on he got it on his phone he googled me and it's on, when you google me it's on the that's what comes up sometimes <laughs> it's a bit unfair well oh, no well I actually it's a bit more than that now but back then it was but anyway I actually had a look at it the other day when he did google I thought I hadn't seen it for years and years and I had a look at it and basically for years it was one of those things I just erased out of my mind and I never saw it but I looked at it and I've come to the conclusion now that for many years, I thought it was a reasonably fair bump, but it actually wasn't a fair bump, right? But that's neither here or there. But I do remember just getting the ball. Macahan passed the ball to me. I got it. There was someone there, and I quickly turned, avoid. I handballed, and like literally three seconds after I handballed, he's just come and just whacked me. And look, and that was his role in the game. And if you were his coach, you'd say, well done, you've done your role. So no, no knock on him. It's just... One of those things, and I remember being extremely groggy and, you know, but the adrenaline of the grand final, not wanting to let your teammates down, but not really being, just didn't know, you know, if it was in modern day football now, you wouldn't be allowed to go back on the ground, like a lot what used to happen back then. And I remember being off and coming back on. I remember at one stage I got the ball and started bouncing, I almost went the wrong way, you know. So it was, you know, and it was a terribly, terribly disappointing for me because I, you know, felt like, you know, I didn't play that well that day. Um, you know, we lost. We actually, you know, were, were playing pretty well before that. And we had a, you know, we probably should have won that grand final. I think our form leading up in that in those games, they got the jump on us, like we did Geelong in '95, and the rest, of, no, the rest is history. There was a criticism, of course, following that incident that no one on the Carlton team actually flew the flag. Do you subscribe to that? That there should have been retribution, you know, meted out. I think. I'm not making any comments regarding what my teammates should have done or shouldn't have done, right? But I think if you're an outsider and if, it, if that incident had happened to Bradley or Camp Rally or Diesel Williams or anyone like that um, and it didn't happen to me, I'm not saying anything, I'm just saying as an outsider, as a supporter, right, and you didn't see anybody rally, I think there would be, a, in hindsight, there's a concern because it was sort of like, it was like we were a bit stunned, right? The club was stunned and didn't really know how to deal with it, right? Um, and it was one of those things where I think it was a factor of players just trying to get their breath and just trying to 
get the ball and get a kick rather than if that incident happened to me and we were six goals up, I think the reaction would have been differently, right? Or even I think the circumstances of the game, I felt, you know, and I probably would have done the thing, just lend itself where we just, you know what, we're just trying to get a kick here. You know, we just got to move on. And that's one of the things. And I think maybe in hindsight that was, you know, in, indicative of how the players were, how their mindsets were. We just weren't – it just wasn't our day, you know. Like, and it's – and it's, you know, we sort of matched them for the rest of the game, but it was just – that's what it was. We were just trying to catch up, catch up football. Twelve months on, fast forward, and it was disastrous. You know, the, the final against Geelong – Waverley Park, I think Aaron Lord came in and there were all those uh, late withdrawals, hocking, Bearstow couch, I think it was. Um, did you think after that result that the window had closed for the Carlton team? Yeah, I thought I thought it, I thought we would we would struggle to certainly um, make the grand final. Um, yeah, that that was a disastrous, disastrous two finals. Um, you know, I still look back at that '94 season as equivalent to '95. You know, you talk amongst all the players, and you know, and you can say what you like because it's not in the history books. But you know, it's fair to say that you know, uh, and I'm being biased here as a Carlton man, and we've got all the Carlton supporters listing here. But if you go through through that that team that we had through between 1990 and 1996. You know, the personnel we had, we were as good as any of the, the great, you know, or Brisbane Bears or whatever it was, you know. It was just, you know, and Collie would have looked, at, Collie would have going to look back and think the same thing. Collie would, should have won probably three or four grand finals, a ripping team. So, you know, I feel very, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely over the moon that I've actually managed to win a premiership, as I explained, because they're so hard to do. But, you know, there is a bit of me there that's sort of half missing where I'm thinking, you know, unfinished business. We should. I should have really walked away with three, four premierships during that era because we had the team to do it. Certainly, ninety four was. I mean, you remember this? We played worst case nine. What did we worst case? What hundred points? Mm. Second last game. Last game, home and away game. It was something. It was outrageous was, it was, result. Yeah. I was Princess Park. It was ninety points, a hundred points. Might have been the second last or last home and away game before the ninety five final series. They won the premiership. You know, and I think there's a bit of players out. Subconsciously, did we think, ah, oh, we're going to romp this in against Geelong? And maybe there was. You it's, know? it's interesting to see, Mel, you can tell just hearing you talk and looking at you that it still cuts it particularly cuts, deep. You can't, can't let it go? I can't let it go. It cuts me up and it cuts all of us up. You can't – how do you let it go? You know, like it's – it's. you can't just say, oh, well, I've won a premiership, I'll let it go. It's impossible to stop the thought coming into your mind when you, if you mention and saying, yes – that one got away, absolutely 100% got away. Do you reckon, reckon Collie was not thinking that, you know, the, the game against Geelong when Posey Adley went down, do you reckon they don't think that's got away? I mean, there are games that just, the Geelong when they lost to Hawthorne should have been 10 goals up at half time. That didn't get away. They think about this the whole time. You just, you just do. And as I said, I'm grateful that I've ended up playing in a, in a, in a premiership, and, you know, someone was telling me Gary Lyon had a speech grand final week a few years ago, and he opened his speech up by saying whatever it is. He said, you either have got one or you haven't. Simple as that, and I don't. And that's indicative of players. And you talk you talk to these people. I'm telling you, there'd be, you know, he wouldn't admit it, but there'd be players who have been sensational players in their time. Nathan Buckley. It would eat away at them. This is, this is our life. 
And I'm thinking to a lesser degree for us, you know, you just, I'll, I'll be thinking about this until I'm 100. You know? It's just... It's a beautiful segue to 95, though, Mill. And, of course, the crowning moment on a few careers, yourself included, of course. Um, you talked earlier about players taking ownership of the team that particular year. A master stroke from Parker and, I think, Anthony Stewart, the psychologist. Um, that was his idea, I think, and the players, it seemed, really embraced it. And the longer the season went on, the greater the team became. And there was almost a, an aura of invincibility amongst that team. Yeah, I think, I think the fact that we, you know, we took sort of reasonable ownership of what we were going to do and how we were going to play, and really started to, you know, challenge each other in terms of, you know, this is particularly when it became evident early on. You know, we won the first whatever six or you know that our form was pretty good, and then obviously we had those two games where we got smashed. And I've got to tell you, I know what you're going to tell me. When we St. got Kilda. St Kilda and Sydney Swans, we, we lost to Sydney Swans by 100 points and St Kilda by 90 points. And you were knocked out that day too? I think one of them, yeah. But right, Keogh got you. That was two, yeah, that's right. Keogh absolutely took the wind out of it like I've never been. And after the St Kilda game, if you actually said to me, how you going, are you concerned? I would have said, bloody oath I am. You know, and anyone who says, oh, yeah, you guys are just... That was a concern. How, I don't know how we picked ourselves up again. Now, it's a remarkable story how you can win that many and then lose two in a row by 100 points and win the next 16. Mill, can I tell you a story that after that game I was walking out of the car park at VFL Park and I happened to catch Stephen Goff, the then mm. um, football manager's mm. eye, and he shaking his head as if to say, you know, we're in massive trouble, trouble here. And yet I think the team came out the following week and, and spanked Hawthorne by plenty. I think it was about an eight or nine goal opening quarter and really the team never looked back from there. But you you can't honestly explain that turnaround? I can't explain it. I cannot explain how you can be so dominant in one year, lose to two teams who weren't high on the ladder. Right? And as I said, I would have walked away after that St Kilda game thinking we're in a bit of trouble here, something has to happen here and and maybe the fact the following week we spanked Hawthorne, all of a sudden we said, you know, now we're right now. That's it. That's never going to happen again. We're right. Was and there, that might have been a good thing. Was there any soul searching that week, do you know? Was there anything done differently to try and turn it around? Don't, you know, look, I can't remember exactly. I mean, someone might be listening who might remember, but I, I certainly think that if I was to say, if I was to take a pot, I would say that it would have been the opposite of what most people would have thought that it wasn't a hard flogging sort of session. I think it was just Moyes, take it easy, you know, let's go and play some volleyball or whatever it is. And just, you know, I think that was sort of rather than saying, you know, the the Jezelinko methods of, you know, running 400 after 400 and getting flogged and stuff like that. So, and maybe that would have contributed as well, I think. And of course, Mill, from from there on in, as we said a moment ago, the team wasn't beaten for the rest of the season. It was an incredible run home to the finals. And the final series itself, there were some amazing performances. The Brisbane game, the North game, and finally the grand final against Geelong. Uh, I've heard Sticks say the North preliminary final that, you know, the morning of that game, he woke up thinking, geez, we haven't lost for, for months. We lose today, we're out. And it was a real reality check to him mm. that, you know, we've got to be on song here or it's all over, as yeah. good as the season's been. Yeah, look, I think 
my, my memories of that, that final series was every single game we went into, probably with the exception of the Brisbane game, where I sort of felt a little bit more confident that we'd probably win the game, which probably ended up being our hardest game, right? I certainly felt North Melbourne was always a formidable opponent. Um, so what made me a little bit more confident was the ease of why we beat North Melbourne. I thought, you know, we're a pretty serious contender here. I expected that to be a lot harder game, and I thought, no, no, this is this is we're on here. And there were a lot of players who were just, you know, I remember the hoggies, jobs he has to do, and all that. You know, it was just relentless. Um, and I think the Brisbane game was like it was a nervous game. It was I just felt like we never really broke out. It was like just get the job done. You know, what I mean, just get the job done, which is probably in the end also a good thing. So, and. Um, I was I was confident against Geelong. I was I got to honestly say I was very confident against Geelong. I don't know why. I just remember seeing them at the parade, and I just remember looking and you know they they were very very cocky. Sunglasses. Uh, well, they. I think there was talk that they when they played us at Optus Oval a couple of games or three games before the end of the season they were terribly unlucky. They should have beaten us out here. They were steamed home and we probably shouldn't have won that game. So they thought you know here we go. We're just gonna. We'll steamroll them in the grand final, but for some reason, I know. I think most players I speak to, we were fairly confident against Geelong. Do you remember at what point of that game you actually thought to yourself, "Oh, we've got it"? Um, well, it wasn't at quarter time because I knew that was way too early. Half time, I think. What we were in front at half time, we were. It was we were ten or twelve or something. It was pretty comfortable, I think. I thought I started feeling fairly comfortable probably halfway through the third quarter. I think we got to a stage where we were about 14 or 15 in front. And then I started doing silly thoughts and thinking, okay, Mel, if we kick one more, two more goals, they need to kick. This is what I was thinking. They need to kick, which I never thought like that for the first two quarters. But then I thought I started to, you know, look at the, they need to kick 17 goals here in a quarter and a half. No one's ever done that. That can't be done. Right, and I, that, that's when I felt fairly comfortable. I don't think Sauce was uh, thinking that way. No, no, but that's yeah, and exactly. But it took to halfway through the third quarter, we were fifteen goals in front. I don't know why it took you that long, Mel. Ten minutes into the game, was on the Cuban cigars. <laughs> oh well, I thought that you know that last game against Richmond, Tony, with seven goals up at half time, and you know. What do you remember most of Grand Final Day, nineteen ninety five, Mel? When you look back now, was there a moment in time that is frozen for you? Um, I remember, obviously remember that just that incredible eerie feeling just running out in the field and, and just feeling like, you know what, this is, this is my, this is what I dreamed about in my life. This is, this is all, this is can all come true, you know, even win, lose or draw. I just thought this is amazing, you know, finally, and just looking around and just really taking in, because David Parkin to tell us, just take it all in, just look around, take the atmosphere in, which we did. And I remember that, and I remember the first quarter where we just came out and blitzed them, and I just thought, you know, this the feeling was just euphoric, you know, just being able to just, you know, and I had a reasonable good quarter that quarter and um, just feeling like that. But probably my most vivid memory of that whole day um, was in the bus going to back to um, the ground, and it was the bus full of players and the coach. And I remember it was sort of like, we just won a grand final for goodness sake. And we're in the club, uh, in the rooms after grand final, throwing beers and drinking, everyone screaming, family in there. And then we get on the bus. 
and then we all sit in the bus and that trip from the MCG to Carlton and might be exaggerating a little bit here but I don't think I am everyone sort of virtually sat in their own chair and I remember just sitting in my own chair looking out the window and I don't think anyone said anything that whole trip and for me that's the most vivid memory of that whole day thinking we got on the bus with just the players and the coach and thinking like just rooted mentally emotionally just rooted and just that that moment that 20 minute ride before we're going to get to the ground where there's thousands of people waiting for us where we can unleash again just that breather and that was for me it was like really strange because if someone had said to me can you describe what you think might happen on a bus from the mcg to princess park after you've won a grand final i would have said the opposite I would have said people would be screaming on the bus and we'd be throwing beers around and jumping up and down. It was completely opposite. It was just complete silence. And I'd imagine after the disappointments of 93, 94, there's relief. Absolutely. It was just like, wow, is this happening or not? And that's what it was. So, yeah, that, that was a you know, really vivid memory. Now, Mill, Father Time called, I think, two years later. Uh, we talked about the final round of 1997, your last game against Richmond. Um, I... I've, I'd actually forgotten this, but after you were delisted by Carlton, you trained with Richmond, but Richmond were banned from competing the 98 pre-season draft because of salary cap breaches. Well, good thing that happened, to be honest with you. I'm so glad, I'm so glad that happened because I feel so much better as a player that's played my whole career at Carlton. Look, you know, Parkin and Colin Kinnear spoke to me after the 97 season and said, look, I think, you know, you've... The last 12 months or so, you're not quite the same. You've had a few niggles and a few hamstring problems and they're more or less saying, you know, your opportunity is going to be limited. And I sort of read the writing and I just thought, you know, what? I, I, I always said to myself, I almost made a pledge with myself, I never ever wanted to end up my career in the reserves. I just didn't want to do it. I just wanted to make sure that I could try to go out on a high. And I said, fair enough, you know. And at the time, I probably... If I, if I said how much do I agree with what the assessment was, I'm, I said maybe I would have agreed with it 60%. I would have thought 40% I thought I could still play at a reasonable level. But looking back at replays, I think they were right, you know. Your time's up, your time's up. And then I just didn't do anything for three months. I virtually retired. And then Richmond rang me, I think. Maybe Adrian Gleeson might have even given call of Richmond on my behalf. And, and they had a young team and... I said, oh, yeah, we'd, we'd love you to come down and, you know, you're an experienced player, you're playing in the premiership. And I thought, you know, I started thinking as old hacked-up footballers do at the time, but we can still do it. So I went and started training with them. And honestly, I hadn't done anything for three months, and I've never been the best in endurance-wise. And I really struggled in terms of training endurance, but the other stuff I was okay. And then, you know, the practice matches started, and I um, remember playing on a practice match, and I think I played on um, Callaway might have been the brother of um, Duncan Callaway. And um, it was, I think, their last or second last practice match before. And I, and I kicked six goals or something. So, I, like, I was in good form. And then they got banned from the draft. And at the time, I was a little bit disappointed because they couldn't draft anyone. But I, but not really. And you know, I just felt like the, there's something in my heart really told me that, you know, and I don't think if I'd actually got drafted, the, I don't think I would have had a good year. I think, you know, the, the reality would have set in and I wouldn't have been able to really because if I couldn't have one at Carlton, then I love Carlton. Uh, so, you know, that's the other real highlight in my career, to be honest with you, the fact that they did get barred from the draft and I never actually eventually ended up playing with them. You remained a one-club player. I loved it. 
Mill, we're getting towards the end, but I must ask the mandatory questions. Best Carlton player seen in your time, and there were some great players when you played. Who's your best opponent? And aside from the premierships that you didn't get with Carlton, do you harbour any other regrets? Um, best player is a difficult one. Um, it's it, it certainly, for me, for me, it would be an absolute... It's a line, split ball line ball between... Steve Kernahan and Greg Williams. Just the players that I actually played with for a long time um, and not far behind them, I would say. Soss is not far behind them. You know, he was just freakish what he was able to do, Soss, you know, you know, in an era where he had four of the five best four fours in the history of the game. We've heard you talk about Kernahan. Why Williams? I mean, Williams is a 100-game player here. Uh, didn't have that length of career count that the other players may have had, but why, why Williams? You know why, Williams. You watched him closely. I mean, he might have played 100 games at Carlton, but my God, they were 100 games of, you know, absolute football brilliance, toughness, you know, just being able to influence games and, you know, on another scale to sticks, you know, he was a freak. You know, I mean, you know, should have won three Brownlows, probably four Brownlows if he shut his mouth, you know, a bit more. So they were probably the two of the best that I played with. You know, I was privileged to play with it, you know, and you can get, we can go on. There's probably 15 other players or freaks that I played with. Um, Best opponent? Funny enough, I had the most difficulty on players that could run. So people like I had real hard. I had hard times playing on people like Michael Pickering for Richmond, who was a great player. He was just a freakish runner. Um, Gavin Brown, really fit runner. Um, you know, I mean, I played on Gary Ablett a few times. He was strong and he was difficult to play on, but. You know, I I didn't mind playing on, you know, I would, honestly, I would rather have played on a Gary Abler or a Wayne Carey who would be more a one-on-one and where I could rather than get someone who was just going to run me into the ground because I wasn't a great endurance runner. So I had real difficulty playing on guys like that. And is there a regret other than the ones you've already mentioned? Uh, you know, a little, little regret and, you know... My great great friend Sticks Kernan beat me by bloody two votes in the best and fairest that year. So if I had to be beaten by anyone, I'm glad I got beaten <laughs> by him. Um, yeah, look, no, that, look, honestly, the, my my two were my main my main one is is you know that that ninety three ninety four seasons you know they were just you know you know I don't think I'll ever forget those ones. You obviously still follow the club from a far mill. How are you assessing the fortunes of the team, you know, under the new coach? I'm very excited about this year, honestly. I, I, I was, I was um, not last year, but the year before, I was, very, I was very excited about Carlton and we were unlucky that year. We sort of, you know, lost by a point. I wasn't, I mean, we don't want to, lo- I like, no one likes to lose games, but there's, there's, there's a smell about the season so far, in my opinion, in terms of having that sort of slower start. Whereas Carlton's notoriously over the last few years had good starts and just fallen away, right? And I think there's there's a smell about the season where I, I believe that there, there's going to be this this build this build on effect as the games go on. I can see that people like Yarram and Garlett, I think they've taken another leap now, and I don't think they're going to jump back. I hope they're not going to jump back in that sort of inconsistency level. I can just see Garlett's just just way more consistent now. And I don't think he's... He, he's Those other days are gone behind him and so is Yarram. Yarram's at a lander level now. You know, Jamison's playing good football and I think um, 
you know, with due, with due respect to my great mate Brett Ratton, I think, you know, you know, Malthouse has had a lot of experience. He knows how to get the best out of these players. I don't know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, um, in the slow start, building up, building up, building up. Um, you know, I'm an avid golfer and I always say to, you know, be wary of the person who birdies or pars the first cycles invariably end up playing really badly for the whole day. So in this situation, you know, we've been, you know, we've, we've lost three games we've, on bases on 15 minutes in each quarter. And we've been competitive against probably the two benchmark teams this year, with the exception of Hawthorne. So, obviously, barring any injuries, I'm I'm very, very hopeful this year. And you'd be enjoying the bloke of the number 13, Guernsey, burning up the track? Well, I remember seeing him about two years ago. He came up to my restaurant upstairs in the bar, and he came up to me and goes, oh, you used to wear number 13. And I looked at him, I said, yeah, I did. I said, make sure you make the jumper proud, you know. I tell you what, I couldn't have been bloody more excited about watching him last week. You know, it's just incredible to see someone just taking... And I felt like the week before, the week before that, remember a couple of times he got the ball and just didn't take him on? I'm thinking, just got to take him on. They're not going to catch you. Sid and Jackson said last week, Mill, when he was in here, that he, when he handed the number five Guernsey across, Kenny Sheldon was going to wear it. And he said, do you mind me wearing it? And Sid said, not at all, as long as you play 100 games and play in a premiership. And he did. Yep. Well, that's the thing, you know, and it's nice. It's nice to see that sort of, you know, handed over and, you know, the tradition sort of continues. A final question, Mill. Um, it's a question we put to all our guests. What does Carlton actually mean to you? Ah, oh, well, you know, for me it's like, I think uh, as my wife put it the other day, she goes, I was very lucky to have played for Carlton because it's not just the fact that you played, it's just opened up a whole new world for me, you know, in terms of friendships and business. Um, and also... You see games, you go and watch a footy game and there's 100,000 people at a game. I mean, every single person at the game wants to play AFL. They'd love to have played AFL. And, you know, as I keep reminding my son, I'm saying, you know, it's not easy to make AFL. You've got, you, got, you know, 80, 80 kids, 100 kids get drafted every year, 18-year-olds. There's probably 100,000 18-year-olds playing football. So the percentages are so small. So, you know, for me to have played one AFL Two for the game that I for the club that I actually was a mad Carlton supporter, um, who'd looked after me all throughout my whole career. You know, like to me, it's just you know. Whilst I don't go to that many games live, I must say now I'm at a situation now where I find it very difficult to watch Carlton, mainly because I don't know it's a weird trait, but mainly because I get I should get almost anxiety attacks. I find whereas when I was a player, and if I was injured, I could actually watch a game and whether win, lose, or draw. Sure, I'd be upset, but I knew there was a level of control that I had through my teammates and what I could do. But now I know I've got no control, and I get really—I feel like I'm actually a kid again. I feel like I'm a ten-year-old kid watching. I get really upset when Carlton loses, and I throw things around, and that's how I'm feeling now. So I sort of, you know, and that, you know, it's yeah, it's. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's been my life. I was there for half, you know, like I was started when I was 15 and I finished when I was 31. So by the time I'd finished, I spent more than my half my life there. It's a great story, Mill, from Kentara to Carlton. I'm sure the listeners that uh, have tuned in will find your recollections absorbing. Thank you so much for sharing the story. Um, and don't get anxious, Mill, because uh, good days are ahead, I'm sure. Well, I must say, I do, what I do is I turn the TV off for 10 minutes and I'll turn it back on when they're in front. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
Thank you very much, Mill. That's uh, all from our history today. We uh, would like to thank Luca Ganano for anchoring the podcast this afternoon. We look forward to catching up with you again shortly when we'll have another guest uh, in the latest of our series of our history. I'm Tony DeBolfo. Goodbye.